welcome to episode 336 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect our institutions, our firms, our families, or our pets. Uh, um, uh, we're going to have an interview later with Brad Wigman, who's a senior counselor at the National Security Division in the Justice Department, about a very good uh, uh, white paper done by the Justice Department, mainly, I think, uh, uh, and other parts of the U.S. government about uh, how to cope with TREMS 2 and some of the uh, uh, arguments that uh, companies may have overlooked as they think about whether they can continue to move data across the Atlantic. Uh, uh, but First, the news roundup. We're going to have Pete Jidel, who's a Stepto associate with our international regula regulatory and compliance practice. Uh, Jamil Jaffer, founder of the National Security Institute and an adjunct professor at George Mason. Um, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with Justice and the National Security Council. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur on today's program. Uh, we are sitting in the moments before the uh, election of 2020, uh, uh, but most of the people who listen to this will uh, be in the middle of voting or the vote count. Um, uh, so why don't we start by talking about election security and what we think is going to happen from a cyber and cyber law point of view I, uh, during the election. Uh, uh, Jamil, my theory on this is that all this election security talk is just Y2K all over again. You can't escape the suspicion that it's mostly hype uh, driven by the politics of 2016, uh, but you can't ignore it. So you have to do the work. Uh, but my guess is we're not going to see a lot of election interference by foreign governments. Well, Stuart, I guess what I would say is I think there has been a lot of election interference already. What I mean by election interference in this context is the sort of both overt and covert informational efforts, the what you would call the covert influence operations if we were doing it. The efforts to shape and modify Americans' views, their preferences, the way they think about the election system, and really the way we think about the election system itself and the rule of law. In fact, our own elected officials have played right in the hands of foreign adversaries in a lot of ways by questioning the potential validity of electoral results and the like and being raising concerns about the rule of law. And so, you know, the goal of these entities, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, other people who might be playing in the space uh, is to, you know, undermine confidence in the FBI, the intelligence community, the Department of Justice. And in that sense, our elected, officials, our, elect, our elected officials have played right in the hands of our foreign adversaries. And I really worry that what most of our other nation state adversaries recognize is that actually interfering in the elections directly would be a bridge too far. It would, it would be inappropriate. And so what I do worry more about in this space is less actual manipulation of votes, which I actually think is pretty hard to do given the diversity of systems and the like, um, is more of this election interference in the form of disinformation, misinformation, and the like. You know, I also do see, you know, the potential for uh, uh, election interference in the form of uh, going after, you know, DDoS attacks on on election websites, uh, potential efforts to um, to go after the voter rolls. I think one of the things that 
our foreign adversaries may not realize about our voter rolls um, is that oftentimes our states will print out the election books well ahead of an election uh, to be prepared at the election site. So I worry less about that in particular, too, although we may see Sarah ransomware and the type of and those sort of attacks on these systems. But again, look, at the end of the day, the real thing to worry about is is foreign influence uh, and the shaping of narratives and the the positioning against our rule of law systems and the electoral system itself rather than actual uh, votes cast or the like. And so, you know, I'm really more focused on that than I am on actual influencing of votes themselves. So, Pete, do you think uh, we're going to see a lot of ransomware issues uh, in the election? Yeah. So I think, you know, as we're saying, that looks like one of the areas where the government's focused on um, some, some concern. There was a DHS FBI alert um, a few weeks ago talking about a Russian APT actor that's, um, you know, it's successfully penetrated um, already some state and local government networks, successfully exfiltrated data um, even. Um, and there's been some private reporting about um, ransomware threats in this space. Again, you know, as we're saying, it's it's not about, um, you know, their concerns not really whether they're going to impact the vote count, um, you know, it's kind of freezing up the systems, causing delay, confusion, space for disinformation, um, just perceptions. Yeah, you could, I, I could imagine saying, well, what better way to get paid ransom uh, uh, for ransomware than locking up uh, the, the state of Georgia's computers so they can't uh, count the uh, uh, the votes or can't report the counts to uh, a central office. Uh, I, you can imagine that the profit motive might be sufficient to lead people to try that. But frankly, we would have started to see it already uh, on on the Monday before the election is my guess. But we'll see. What about uh, Jamil? The Iranian, the the, the government, uh, uh, the U.S. government said that uh, they've found Iranian hackers trying to get into election related websites in 10 states. Uh, do you think that's a serious threat or is it like so much of what the Iranians do more hype than uh, impact? Look, what the government has said about what the Iranians have done is that they've been probing these sites, um, you know, uh, looking at the voter registration databases, looking at the websites that convey information uh, publicly about the election results and the like. This is not the crime of the century type stuff where they're actually going after um, votes themselves, the machines themselves. Um, so in a lot of ways, what the Iranians are doing is um, a lot of what we talked about. We've seen them do before. Frankly, we've seen the Iranians run DDoS attacks against our financial systems. We saw that happen a few years back. Um, so they know how to do this. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising if they undertook this. At the same time, what we're not seeing, I think, is the most important piece of this, which is we're not seeing them actually go after uh, the core uh, election infrastructure itself or votes. I do think it plays into uh, this larger question about confidence in the election system, um, right? Again, we talked about earlier uh, the the place that our elected officials have played into um, questioning the election system. And so as a result, um, if they are able to sort of slow down results or conduct DDoS attacks and the like, that may undermine or create additional concern about the system itself. But look, at the end of the day, I think the American people can go to the polls, feel confident that their votes will be counted, uh, that their votes will be cast properly, um, and that there's not a real problem in our election system. And that to the extent there are delays in getting the results or you see DDoS attacks or the like, 
That's more noise in the system than anything. It's designed to undermine our confidence system. We shouldn't have our confidence undermined, and we should feel go forward feeling strong yeah, and confident will, about if, our system. If, if it's not close, we'll know. If it is close, we'll know where the problems are, where the uh, – and, uh, you know, that's the, the real difficulty. It's one thing to write rules that you think are sound pretty fair when you don't know whether they will switch the election and in which direction they will. Uh, once it gets down to knowing – this is the state that will determine the presidency, uh, and these are the votes, then everybody starts making arguments that are uh, utilitarian, uh, and uh, it could get ugly. So, Nate, um, the Silicon Valley speech police uh, are fully galvanized to uh, to make sure that uh, at least the legitimacy of a Biden victory can't be challenged. Uh, um, they are banning political ads uh, after the election. And um, uh, YouTube is saying that they're going to label things where they aren't sure where, where, where the results are not final, according to the people they consider authoritative, so that claims of victory will be subject to a warning label that uh, uh, the speech police don't believe that uh, the results are final. Do you um, think that any of that is likely to be significant uh, in terms of shaping the discourse after the election? I don't know that it's going to be significant, but look, let's face it. If there's one lesson Silicon Valley has learned in the recent past is that you will be held responsible for what happens on your platform, um, whether that has a big impact or not. It's the perception. And if if they've learned another lesson, it's probably that no matter what you do, you're not going to make everybody happy and you're you know, very likely to make nobody happy. Um, you know, I think when they look around and they see um, that they are clearly an attractive medium for disinformation campaigns. You have at least one political party who's doubling down on voter suppression efforts, and and um, you know you know that there's an there's an open threat vector there in social media platforms, um, and you have you know just this weekend reports that President Trump is thinking about prematurely declaring election victory and <laughs> in the middle of the ballot counting and and planning to question. Uh, efforts to continue counting um, from that point on, you know, they have to ask themselves, do you want to own that in in the That's, days it, and it, weeks that right. follow? It's, it's possible he'll do that. It's, it's a little bit nutty to say they should stop counting. But For sure. It is nutty, but he's done nutty things before, let's face it. And I think, you know, there it's a, you know, let's be honest too. It's a bit of a blunt instrument that they're, you know, um, pulling out here to try to address this problem. There are interesting ideas out there. There's a former Facebook uh, employee, Matt Peralt, who's at Duke University now, who's done a fair amount of writing on, on you know, how to deal with political ads on social media and has even some concrete suggestions about how to do this in a more targeted way um, and be a little more effective. But um, but I think, you know, as we're seeing, instead of actually debating real ideas or the merits of this, um, you know, the Republicans are, are trotting out this fear campaign about them being biased against them when well, they, they the reality is they're just trying. They, 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 they've already shut down the New York Post uh, 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 story on a completely bogus. Oh, this is probably the Russians uh, uh, theory. Uh, uh, that was a hair trigger. I mean, for, that uh, that theory has speech. panned out 
reasonably well in the subsequent weeks. Let's be honest, Stuart. And uh, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later. We got this guy Bobolinsky. Uh, he's not a he's not a a, a a a Russian plant saying, yeah, those those are legitimate uh, messages. Uh, and uh, Joe Biden knew about the deals I was doing, uh, and. Uh, uh, and he's yet. already been caught in in lies himself about this. So, um, but we can get into that later. I guess the point is that you know any time that social media or the tech companies or anyone else is not actively helping Republicans win political campaigns, it means Republicans think they're against them and and trot out this fear campaign and and play to their voters you know sense of victimhood and i mean you know, again I mean, if we want to debate wait. if we want to debate the substance let, let, of let these Jimmy, policies Jimmy, and whether they're a good I, idea I, we can I, have I that debate between us <laughs> i mean i mean look let's be let's be fair okay there certainly has been an effort to limit speech that is not not you know clearly wrong or not clearly um, foreign disinformation, right? There, there's no nobody can debate. Nobody can debate whether there may be, whether there's a political bias to it or not. Whatever. There's no question that the platforms have, as part of their laudable effort to try and push out foreign disinformation, have shut down American voices. Now we can debate whether it's conservatives only, or mostly conservatives, or partially liberals, or whatever, right? But we've never thought that less speech. American speech that's about politics, right, is a good thing. We've always taken the view that the answer to bad speech or speech you don't like or speech that you think is is incorrect is more speech. Why are we in the business of empowering and encouraging private sector companies to shut down increased amounts of American political speech? That seems crazy. So, so let me ask you a question then, Jamil. Why are they so upset about fact checking? And labeling. Because the fact checkers it's, it's are more speech. Come on. They, it's they, 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 it's they, more they, speech. Like, the fact, it's the not, fact checking it doesn't even say it's now. inaccurate. It says if you want if you want other arguments about this topic, go here. No, sorry. The fact checking is a scam these days. Uh, it, uh, it, there was a time when it, it was legitimate checking of facts, but it's become a, an excuse for writing a hostile op-eds about Republicans. Uh, I mean, uh, let's be honest. The 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 conservative vision of fair and balanced on the internet is Fox News. This is this is what they're after. And anything that doesn't replicate that is is by definition in their view bias. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. We can all we can all agree that Fox News is not unbiased. And we can all agree that MSNBC is not unbiased, right? The problem is that CNN Right, which purports to be even-handed, just factually-based news. If you turn it on and watch it, is literally all op-ed and no news. Right, there's a smattering of news and mostly op-ed. Right, and and all I want, and, and frankly, the platforms are the same. When they label stuff, they label it fact or not fact, based in part based on sort of political views. And all I want to do is look, tell me who the speaker is, then let me decide whether I want to listen to that speaker or not. If you must label it fact or must label something, give me a link to the alternative content, right? And let me decide. I, I don't need editorializing from the platforms or from CNN. If I want editorial, I'll go to MSNBC and Fox News. I know where to get it, right? And if you're going to be editorial, that's fine too. You have a choice to do that. But let me know when you're editorializing and don't mask it as fact-checking or anything else. That's all we ask. 
So let me ask, let me, let me move this to a slightly different topic, but related, which is the, the, the view sweeping Silicon Valley that political ads after the election are bad and ought to be banned. I think everybody's done that now. Uh, and that's, I think that's interesting because those clearly are American speakers. Uh, it probably has something to do with, uh, you know, like disliking money in politics or maybe being confident that at least one side's political ads are not going to be something that you find palatable. But if you ban political ads, you strengthen other voices. You you strengthen the people who control the voices and you strengthen the what you might call uh, um, uh, organic uh, uh, speakers. Um, I've heard complaints uh, from the left saying, well, this just means that Dan Bongino or whatever his name is will will have more sway. Uh, and, and then other people uh, probably me included, say, saying, well, this just means that uh, when uh, uh, Google or the YouTube or Facebook shuts down uh, a, a line of analysis, there won't be somebody to, uh, uh, to with a big, broad voice to say they're wrong. Uh, but why why do we think that ads are, political ads are a bad thing after the election? I, I mean, again, I think that not to defend the position they're taking here, but I think the fear is that they're going to be used to, um, you know, broadly question election results, have some harmful effects that they're trying to prevent. And that's why, um, you know, I was trying to point to folks like Matt Peralt. If we want to have a debate about whether, um, you know, what exactly the concerns are and how you address them in a more targeted way, there are people out there trying to have that conversation. But, um but cutting it short and focusing on the wrong issues, on bias, on things like that, is is a bit of a distraction. And if we want to actually solve these problems, and and we'll talk about this in a minute about the hearing that was held last week on two thirty, you actually have to talk about the problems and how you want to solve them. And and I fear that we're just not doing that right now. Um, and. Uh, and so I think that there are probably more targeted ways to try to address this. There are other concerns. There are other problems like the one you identified and like Matt and others have talked about that by, you know, locking out certain voices um, through political advertising, you're effectively amplifying others that aren't necessarily more reliable and maybe spewing out the same kind of content you're trying to stop. And so. So that's why I think we just need to to you know put some blinders on and try to focus on on the real issues ahead of us. So if 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 there's one thing I would have thought we could all agree on, it's that uh, even people who might trust Silicon Valley to decide what can and cannot be said uh, uh, in social media would not be willing to let uh, the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party decide what can and cannot be said, uh, which is the at the heart of the U.S. government's decision to try to uh, block WeChat in the United States. Um and yet um, the courts thus far have practically said um, the, uh, the People's Republic of China does get uh, to shape uh, a social media. And if they can get their social media accepted here, U.S. law is going to protect their, uh, uh, their moderation policies. Jamil, uh, uh, we've gotten uh, both a U.S. appeal brief. Uh, in a TikTok case, and also another district court decision 
ruling against the U.S. The U.S. has basically lost every court decision so far, uh, at least every final one. Um, uh, what what is driving the courts in the direction of protecting TikTok from the uh, uh, the order to uh, disenfranchise it in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the challenge, Stuart, here is the are, are the provisions that Congress itself put in um, the laws that are relevant here. So, as as you know, um, the effort underway here is to uh, limit. Uh, the access of TikTok to the U.S. market by using IEPA authorities, right, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act authorities, where the president has broad authority uh, to bar transactions uh, with foreign nationals or foreign entities. Here, what's happening is uh, the effort to remove uh, the platforms and to remove them from the app stores and limit uh, American user uh, access to them. Uh, may run afoul, as some of these courts have examined and suggested, uh, certain prohibitions that Congress actually put into uh, these laws saying that you can't use it to uh, take action against informational materials. Now, there's a debate, obviously, between the administration um, and 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 those that they're trying to TikTok and the companies are trying to uh, bar from having access to the U.S. market. And and today the the um, the courts have held uh, that there is uh, that that the statutory bars are prohibited, as well as there may be constitutional limitations here uh, in place, including the First Amendment and the ability to uh, to engage in speech like activities on these platforms. And so I think the government it, it faces an uphill burden here, uh, not just because of the constitutional arguments, but also the very statute that they're trying to utilize, which has language uh, that might be read broadly. Uh, to bar uh, the regulation or direct or indirect of these informational materials uh, to with these platforms and the content that's on them. Yeah. So the argument is that this is indirect regulation of all the people who are speaking on TikTok. Uh, and uh, um, and the, the government says, well, if that's the case, you know, uh, uh, we, we think we're just getting at the economic uh, 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 transactions, the payments, the ads, the uh, the updates, uh, uh, and we're not regulating people's ability to speak. And the courts, the courts have said, come on, uh, if you don't have ads and you don't have uh, updates, pretty soon people won't be able to speak on this platform. And the existence of other platforms is not of any concern to ours, you are indirectly regulating uh, the delivery of TikTok speech. That's not crazy. The, the, the government has arguments that say if, if you carry that too far, you'll basically make uh, IEPA on, uh, uh, nugatory. But I, it's, uh, this is going to be a tough fight. Uh, but the, when you step back from it and you say, really, the First Amendment and American law allows the Chinese Communist Party to subsidize social media services in the United States to make sure that they can control the uh, the messages that are delivered there. Um, uh, would we really feel the same way if the uh, because it seems to be pretty clear at, at this point, uh, uh, TikTok could start serving up Russian propaganda about uh, Hillary Clinton uh, and the courts would have to say, oh, yeah, that's just fine. No problem. There's you know, nothing the U.S. government can do about it. Uh, very uh, odd. And I suspect uh, it means Congress uh, in maybe in any uh, 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 formulation that we see coming out of the election is going to have to take another look at whether it really meant what it said in IEPA. Um, and maybe that'll be a good uh, uh, discussion. It's a hot potato if 
there's a Biden administration. They are not going to want to talk about China, right? Uh, uh, you can imagine how much fun that would be for the Republicans to, to talk about. Uh, um, so they may just want to say, oh, well, if we win, we win. And if we lose, we lose. And then we're just going to bury it either way. Uh, uh, it'll be um, a, an interesting political uh, uh, discussion. Back, uh, as Nate promised, to uh, the hearings uh, that uh, uh, were held on 2.30, where we got, uh, uh, you know, uh, a really good uh, uh, look at uh, the uh, facial hair of, uh, of billionaires uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, some of it really disturbing. Um, a, and I, let's, let's see if we can draw a quick lesson what did we actually learn, Nate? Uh, what did you feel you learned from the, that hearing other than that um, uh, Ted Cruz uh, is really good at asking uh, harsh questions? <laughs> Almost nothing, Stuart. Um, it, it seemed like mostly posturing to me. I mean, you know, we've seen for a long time that um, Section 230 is in the sights of both Democrats and Republicans. But to say there's agreement among them uh, on this issue is like saying both parties want to cut taxes or something like that. There you know, seems I, to be no agree. agreement in how they want to do it. Can I stop you and, and disagree yeah, with yeah. you on that? Because I, I actually think you're you're right. The the places they come from, and the irresistible impulse to throw rocks at the other side to, uh, dominates the discussion. But you know what I heard from everybody who appeared uh, uh, on the part of the companies is, yeah, yeah, well, okay, some more transparency. Yeah, probably makes some sense. We should explain ourselves. We should make our rules available. We should allow people to uh, um, uh, appeal. I, th that's kind of table stakes. And that is something that I would have thought that uh, – both Republicans and Democrats would agree on the Democrats because they think it would show how unbiased uh, social media are when they rule in favor of Democrats and the Republicans be th because they think it would expose the bias. Um, uh, but why isn't that the beginning of a discussion of what 230 ought to mean? I think it is if people are focused on, again, the substance, because as you said, it's table stakes. In fact, much of that is going on already. There's there's not a whole lot of transparency around the decision-making process. So there are, there are areas where more transparency could certainly be injected, but I don't think Silicon Valley fears um, you know more transparency around what the rules are or how they're enforced. Um, why yeah, I think it's because, unlikely because it seems, to. Don't you think they should? Because it, 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 if they yes. if they release the rules, people will game the rules uh, and then they'll have to have new rules to deal with the gaming of the rules. I mean, there we are not anywhere near at the end of the rulemaking process, are we? No, although I think, you know, if they set the rules in a way that they're comfortable with. And of course, you're going to learn new things over time and have to make adjustments as you go along. But if if you have rules that that people can, uh, you know, reasonably agree on and and reflect um, their values of how they want to run their company and they're even handedly enforcing those things, I think that's a win for Silicon Valley. Um, because as you said, it can do a better job of showing that they're not 
biased, why I don't think it's going to be uh, a good place for a starting point among Democrats and Republicans is I don't think either side's going to think it's enough. You know, they've all gotten themselves so wound up around, you know, dramatic reforms that are going to address their what they perceive as the big problems in Silicon Valley right now. And and I think that, you know, there are going to be too many people on each side of the aisle who who think that is just not going far enough. And and it, it, it you know, I could be proven wrong, but this could tell us the difference between a Congress that wants to do something and to, to make incremental progress and a Congress that that just wants to continue the campaign for another two years. So, um, what, what what's happening in the European Union on this topic? It's it's struggling with the issue in a way that is reminiscent uh, in, in some respects of uh, uh, the U.S. debate minus Republicans. Uh, <laughs> and they are also having difficulty figuring out what their government policies ought to be, let alone what their social media policies ought to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a little bit par for the course in Europe. Um, but it, yeah, so they're they're actually um, currently working on updating the rules governing, among other things, online content moderation. And there's a, a big push uh, for you know forcing Silicon Valley to do more to moderate harmful content on their platforms. They're um, The technology companies uh, came out with a letter last week. Um, You know, it it seems they see the writing on the wall that something is going to happen. More is going to be expected of them in Europe. It's already been happening at the member state level to a degree. You had um, Germany, uh, among others, moving pretty aggressively on hate speech. There's been a big push in in the UK and France and other places uh, on terrorist content and extremist content. Uh, And what the what the tech companies are now asking for is greater liability protection for their removal decisions. Um, you know, if they're not aware of things that violate the rules right now, um, they don't have to take it down and they're not going to be held reliable for that. The big concern is uh, among the tech industry that as they refine their algorithms and get better at detecting um conduct that violates the law in Europe, there's a potential argument that the the failure to take things down then or take things down quickly enough is going to expose them to legal liability for having it up on the platform. And so, so right, now, uh, right now they don't face much. They, they haven't been subject to liability for taking stuff down, but they've been subject to enormous liability for not taking stuff down. So there's a one way ratchet yes. already. And they're saying, you know, we can live with that one way ratchet. In fact, why don't you make it even more aggressive so that we are confident that as long as we're taking speech down, we're never going to get in trouble. Um, that uh, that, That's that right. puts them in the position of being even more aggressive uh, suppressors of speech. Uh, um, they and the European governments are probably pretty comfortable with considering the speech that's getting suppressed. Uh, but it's not clear that that's a good outcome. 
Yeah, that's right. And the new rules are due out in December. Um, it's entirely possible that timeline is going to slip, if not likely. And, you know, as we discussed a minute ago, you know, I think it's less the the lobbying from Silicon Valley and American tech companies uh, that's slowing things down. And it's more just a, a challenge of getting Europeans on on the same page as, as different political factions within Europe have, have different agendas themselves even though they're okay. not worried about conservative bias. <laughs> they're worried about other things. Let's let's see if we can uh, buzz through three dis, uh, dis, uh, stories quickly and, and wrap up, uh, get to our interview. Um, uh, Pete, uh, ransomware, th- th- there's an unprecedented drumbeat of warnings about ransomware attacks on the healthcare system. Is this really something we have to be worried about? Yeah, so I think there's been you know something on the order of uh, 500 or so healthcare facilities in the U.S. that have been impacted, had their services you know diverting ambulances, um, shutting down services for brief periods of time, um, and you know finally the government's caught on. And last week um, they issued an advisory. It was uh, DHS, FBI, and Health and Human Services. You know, finally warning the industry about this risk that they've been suffering now for. Uh, many months and are well aware of, um, you know, it's a tough, you know, there was actually one case where uh, reportedly a patient death was attributed to this because uh, in Germany, uh, uh, an ambulance had to be diverted. The facility was shut down um, in New York, upstate New York, um, diverting hospitals last week, I think after an attack. Um, so, you know, it's a really tough time for hospital systems. They're ramping up for COVID, they're full throttle, um, trying to get their capacity up. Um, and at the same time, they've got these threats that are, you know, poking holes in their cybersecurity. So, you know, are they, are they going to ramp up full speed or are they going to slow down and do it carefully and try to patch all their holes? Um, it's a difficult position to be in. Okay. Canada is having a debate about intelligence and law enforcement that sounds a lot like a debate that the United States was having in 1998. Um, uh, Nate, uh, um, is this just about, you know, should we have a wall between intelligence and law enforcement? Uh, do they have a, an equivalent of the, the tools that the U.S. has used? It's not like we've solved this problem. We've just buried it uh, and it hasn't risen from the dead yet. Uh, it, it sounds like the Trudeau government is trying to decide how much protection it can give to classified information uh, procedures uh, in uh, law enforcement proceedings. Yeah, it's, you know, it's somewhat ironic that the memo has leaked and this bureaucratic squabbles being played out uh, in the press. But, you know, it's not anything different from what we're facing. They they do seem to have um, some kind of, of analogous law to the Classified Information Procedures Act that we have here in the U.S., um, as, as you know, that is something that, that is helpful. It narrows the, the number of cases where you actually have to consider um, dismissing charges or potentially right. you can, exposing you can intelligence. Summaries of the, you, can, you can provide summaries of the classified information. Uh, the judge can look at it and say he doesn't need any more than that. Uh, and and you know, that's, a, that's a kind of papering over of the problem. And it sounds to me as though the real problem in Canada is the judges weren't willing to paper over it anymore. 
Yeah, and and it it also seems that there's a bit of a lack of trust between the intelligence services and the law enforcement professionals here. Um, you know, I think for the most part, the U.S. has gotten better at at working together and each side trusting that in the end, the the best decision for. Um, U.S. national security all up is going to be made about whether to prosecute or whether to to dismiss, and and it doesn't seem like that same level of of, of communication and trust is happening in Canada. So I think, in addition to looking at some potential legal reforms, which they're doing uh, clearly through through this memo and and the conversation that's ongoing. There probably has to be some some effort to repair the the relationship a little bit between law enforcement officials and and intel officials to restore some of that trust. Yeah. Okay. And finally, uh, uh, Pete, uh, the United States has made it clear that making uh, computer chips, making five G uh, uh, phone systems, uh, uh, making TikTok videos are critical U.S. industries that we don't want the Chinese participating in. Uh, now we get a CFIUS ruling that says baby making is also a critical U.S. industry. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, what do we know about this? This is not a story where we know everything that happened because CFIUS is supposed to be confidential, but we know a lot. Yeah, exactly. So there wasn't a huge amount of disclosure or, you know, reporting about the details of this case. You know, on the one hand, it's not surprising. We've been seeing a lot of CFIUS cases about sensitive personal data. Um, you know, there was the firma expansion of CFIUS jurisdiction um, on, you know, over U.S. businesses with sensitive personal data. There have been a lot of divestiture orders. Um, you know, March of this year, hotel data firms stay in touch. You know, it's got a bunch of data on hotel guests, obviously very sensitive. It even had, you know, the ability to, to do virtual hotel room keys. So another kind of, you know, threat vector there. Um, ordered, uh, there was a divestiture order against a Chinese investor. So there's been a bunch of cases like that. Here, we don't have a huge amount of detail. We know that it happened during this administration. Um, we don't know when, um, but CNBC that um, that reported the story actually got the head of the National Security Division on the record and saying, look, it, you know, helpfully, it was really describing the two the two threats that um, they see here, you know, kind of the obvious one impeding the Chinese government's ability to collect sensitive personal data on Americans, which we've been, you know, it's been out there for a long time. But then interestingly, number two, um, concern about the Chinese government's ability to use this fertility data, biological data, genetic data to develop a biological weapon. I don't know what that means. I mean, we're talking about releasing mutant poison sperm into our water systems or i don't know what it is but um, actually i can i can explain that it is certainly possible to 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 develop uh uh biological weapons that attack people with particular uh uh genetic uh, uh types uh and so if if you designed your biological weapon so it uh, uh only attacked uh, Africans uh, you could probably do it uh and you could kill a substantial uh portion of the population of the United States or frankly uh, uh Anglo-Saxons uh, there are differences big enough that you could probably design a biological weapon so it distinguished among uh, uh various ethnic groups, which would be, you know, shocking and horrible. Uh, and, and you wouldn't want, I suppose, um, foreign governments to know 
what the genetic makeup of Americans was, because uh, that would mildly advance that effort on their part. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of this article was saying there's a lot of uh, fertility clinics already in the California, San Diego area that have um, Chinese investors. Um, It's apparently very popular for Chinese medical tourists after the one child policy. They're really lucrative businesses. So Chinese investors are coming in in droves. So, um, you know, maybe a bit of a warning to that industry. Um, And we got a little bit of insight on the CFIUS process um, from the National Security Division um, head in that article who talked about one particular acquisition. It was a Chinese coal company that had a leading role in the acquisition of a San Diego fertility clinic. And he just kind of, you know, kind of said, there's a big red flag. You know, you got a coal company behind a fertility clinic in California. Um, So dissonance in the business rationale. I got to say, you know, if I was a Chinese coal company, I wouldn't see a big future for myself uh, in that (laughs) industry. So diversifying, uh, uh, maybe turning to making babies as opposed to uh, (laughs) uh, uh, producing coal is is where my future lies. Uh, uh, I am a little disappointed. Uh, I thought at first maybe there was going to be a call from the U.S. government to say, uh, Americans should be making American babies and we need you. Uh, I was prepared to volunteer, uh, but uh, apparently that's not the pitch that's uh, that's being made here. All right. Uh, uh, look, I, uh, thanks to all of you. I want to turn right now to the uh, uh, interview with Brad Wigman. Okay, now let's turn to our interview with Brad Wigman, who is Senior Counselor for the National Security Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. And we're going to be talking about a report that clearly the Justice Department had an enormous role in drafting, uh, uh, which should have been titled, Is There Life After Schrems 2? And the the answer that the white paper gives is, yes, there is. Uh, Might be controversial. It's certainly um, uh, creative. Uh, uh, But let's start. Uh, Brad, welcome to the uh, uh, to the podcast. We work together in government, uh, so it's a pleasure to see you again. Well, thanks so much for having me, Stuart. I just want to say at the outset, I know this is your my understanding is your 336 episode of uh, Cyberlaw Podcast with um, with Stuart Baker, and it's just an honor to be considered as you know possibly among the top 336 uh, you know luminaries that you bring on your on your show i know it took you a while to get around to me but nonetheless it is a signal honor uh, to be considered uh, as part of this program so anyway i appreciate being uh, even at 336 that's a uh, that's you know no small potatoes so uh, anyway thank you well, you picked one of my favorite topics, uh, uh, European hypocritical uh, imperialism. Right? So, uh, but that how many, how many of your show. shows have you had on that subject? Probably, probably at least several dozen on that topic. I imagine the three thirty-six. I could do that. Maybe I'll. Maybe it'll be. I'll start doing a feature this week in European hypocritical imperialism. Uh, uh, but let's let's start for us, uh, users who uh, aren't familiar with the topic. Uh, um, How did we end up with this white paper? What happened that led to uh, the government feeling it had to produce a white paper? Okay, so uh, for your listeners, the European uh, Court of Justice issued a decision this summer in July, uh, which we refer to as the Schrems II decision because it's the second of a a pair of cases brought by a um, a European national named Max Schrems uh, challenging the transfer of data um, from, uh, on his uh, Facebook account from Europe to the United States, on essentially on the grounds that 
it could be accessed by the U.S. intelligence community in a way that was not consistent with European data protection law. And so this is the second such opinion. And in this opinion, what the court did is two main holdings. One is it struck down the privacy shield, which is an arrangement uh, that had been negotiated between the United States and Europe to facilitate data flows from Europe to the United States. Uh, and the court found that that uh, privacy shield arrangement was inadequate because uh, U.S. surveillance law did not contain ad- uh, sufficient privacy protections. At the same time, however, the court found that what were called standard uh, corporate clauses, which is another mechanism, uh, contract clauses, which is another mechanism for transferring data from Europe to the United States, continue to be available, but that um, companies have to consider in assessing whether those transfers are consistent with European law, uh, uh, the privacy protections afforded in U.S. law or, or in any country's law. And so the reason why we put the paper out is to provide information to companies because what the court has asked them to do is make their own independent analysis uh, of the law. And companies are ill-equipped. Many companies out there, there are thousands of companies who might rely on standard contract clauses. And we wanted to make information available uh, to them about U.S. intelligence law and practice um, so that they could evaluate it as they make the assessments that are required in the second part of the Schrems decision. So that's I'll, I'll stop there. That's uh, I, uh, I think that's uh, a very useful summary of the law. The, the surrounding economic impact of this is potentially quite staggering because um, a, large numbers of companies move data across the Atlantic all the time uh, to get the cheapest storage, the cheapest processing, or just to make sure that they're uh, handling all of their data in the same place. Uh, and... Uh, what the European law has done is put at risk the idea of it moving any personal data across the Atlantic to the United States uh, because of a longstanding uh, policy that uh, uh, data from Europe can't be moved to places where the law is inadequate. Uh, and Privacy Shield was meant to say uh, every com- company that wants to move the data can just buy into applying European law to the data when it arrives in the United States. We'll all be home free. Uh, uh, no problem. Except that, of course, uh, no company can say, and we're going to create an exemption for ourselves from national security law. So if the national security authorities in the United States wanted access to that data, they could go through uh, the process provided in U.S. law and get it. Uh, And what the Court of Justice did is it said, we object to the idea that the U.S. government can get access to this data under their law because we don't think their law meets our high standards for uh, uh, human rights protection. Um, And therefore, we're going to say that privacy shield simply cannot stand. And then you would have thought that the same analysis applied to the standard corporate clauses because uh, the standard corporate clauses are just a, a corporate uh, a contract that uh, in which companies agree to prompt uh, to apply the law of Europe even when they're handling the data in the United States. But because the court didn't have standard corporate clauses in front of it, it waffled and said, "Well, maybe it will survive if you go through an analysis that decides, uh, yes." 
my data is being treated consistent with European law when it gets to the United States. Uh, and as I read this white paper, you're telling people in the United States who are going through that plus factor analysis uh, 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 some facts they might not be aware of that ought to be part of their uh, their thinking. That's right. We're not giving them legal advice. It's important to recognize, but we're giving them the facts uh, so that they can make their own analyses and their own assessment of uh, European law. So for people who read the uh, decision, and indeed, I think for the people who wrote the decision, it was designed to put a stake in the heart of uh, uh, transatlantic data flows. Uh, uh, you may think that's a bad idea. You may think the, ju the justices were crazy to do that, but that's what I think they intended to do. You make the argument that uh, a lot of companies can move data without worrying about U.S. intelligence law. Uh, part of it struck me as pretty clearly uh, uh, the case. Um, if you've never been asked to provide information to an intelligence agency under U.S. law, um, you would think that you'd be able to say, well, I don't think that whatever the problems are with U.S. law, uh, that they are going to affect the data that I'm moving. And, and that's, that's your first and I think your strongest point. Yeah, so th that's exactly right. I mean, look, as you said earlier, there are thousands of companies that are affected, potentially affected by this decision. And we just thought that's a stark contrast to the very, very small number of companies that actually get legal process from the government uh, in, in, for, to meet our intelligence needs. And those are largely the big tech companies that uh, handle communications data. We don't, by and large, have interest in employee records of a car company or, you know, Dunder Mifflin paper company that might have uh, some dealings in Europe and has uh, has some records that may contain personal data. We have no interest in that information. Again, we just wanted to make that fact available, how that will factor into how data protection authorities in Europe or the courts look at this uh, remains to be seen. But this case involved Facebook, a company that there was no question has some intersection with the U.S. national security community, but the vast majority of companies, overwhelming majority, are not in that position. And so we just wanted to make sure that uh, those companies understood that and that they can make whatever arguments they want, you know, based on that fact, which I think is uh, salient and would dramatically reduce the scope of the problem for, for companies. So the other thing you said in this, in, in what I think of as the, uh, uh, the, the overall uh, uh, exemption argument is you say, uh, you know, the U.S. government sorry, European law allows uh, transfers uh, to occur in the public interest. And you make the argument that it's in the European public interest for data to be subject to U.S. intelligence scrutiny. Um, how, how does that argument play out? And where does it fit in uh, people's analysis of whether they can move the data? Yeah, so... Here again, we just wanted to make the point so that companies are aware that um, the, the same information that we collect under Section 702 of FISA uh, for our own intelligence purposes is routinely and frequently shared with our European partners, our intelligence partners all across Europe. And that information goes to their great benefit. So to prevent terrorist attacks in Europe, for example, or to prevent you know, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, cyber activities in Europe, we passed information routinely uh, to our European partners. And so to the extent that European law 
allows for exceptions to data sharing where it is in the public interest. And again, that's a legal question that we leave with the companies and their counsel to assess. But to the extent that it does permit uh, a derogation on that grounds, we want to make sure that companies would have that information available to them. So they they would have the uh, uh, information necessary to make whatever public interest arguments uh, they can make. We're not taking a position whether the how the public interest derogation there there is one available as I understand it under European law. We're not obviously commenting or providing advice on that for for uh, any particular company, but we want to make sure that to the extent they want to make those arguments, that there's certainly a factual basis to conclude that it's not only in the U.S. interest but also in the interest of our European partners and of European nationals for this data to be shared. To be candid, it sounds more like the kind of argument you'd make if you were trying to persuade the European Union to enter into an agreement with the United States allowing these transfers. Uh, and I, I gather there's been some effort at uh, negotiations. Are, are, are there talks underway designed to uh, find a replacement for uh, Privacy Shield? So there have been some preliminary discussions, and we expect more of them. Uh, we've made clear we would like to do a, a renewed framework and try to address the problems that the court identified in TREMS to. On their part, the people at the European Commission have also expressed an interest in in doing that, and we've started to have kind of tentative and preliminary discussions. I, I think it's fair to say we haven't really started in earnest because, the, as you know, Stuart, the wheels of government turn slowly, uh, and they turn even more slowly when it's a big international negotiation like something like this. But we are keenly focused on it, I can assure you, um, and I think our European partners are as well. So, yes, there will be um, discussions as we try to um, piece something together to address the court's decision. So the European Commission, to my mind, is in a very awkward position here because for years they loved having this issue. They negotiated and renegotiated and broke and reauthorized negotiations, always asking for a little bit more from the United States to get adequacy determinations and to allow the data to complete, com- continue flowing. But they never really wanted to come to the point of cutting off data because they don't know how that will play out. Uh, um, and the problem is it's a little like the sorcerer's apprentice. They let loose this idea that uh, uh, U.S. law could be inadequate because of its intelligence activities, um, uh, something that I don't think anybody would have thought in 1995 when these rules first went into effect. Um, And and then the court of justice picked it up and said, you know, we're going to take you at your word uh, and we're going to say that you could not possibly have found the United States adequate when you reached your last agreement. Now, I think they must be wondering, well, what do we have to do to meet the standards that the court imposed, which um, on their face would seem to require a lot of change in um, U.S. legal uh, uh, approaches to intelligence collection? Yeah, well, we're hopeful we'll find a solution that won't require a lot of changes in how we collect intelligence that will still meet the court's concerns. And so that remains to be seen. But your fundamental point is is absolutely correct. I mean, we our concern is that to the extent that uh, European law is opposing standards that can't be met by the United States and the U.S. intelligence community, what country can meet these standards? Um, we don't think we think our standards are terrific. We think uh, we have some of the highest privacy protections uh, on our intelligence collection in the world, um, at equal to or higher than those of many European states, That some of which don't have any regulation of some of the very same activities we're talking about. And forget about other countries, Australia, Canada, et cetera, around the world, much less 
uh, regimes that don't respect the rule of law, like China and Russia, um, all of which have data flowing back and forth with Europe. So it's a problem that we really think transcends the bilateral US-EU relationship to really the EU and all the countries around the world. So we very much would like the discussion about um, the future of kind of EU data protection law and how it affects other countries to be one not only between us and the United States, but between other countries as well. And, and how is Europe applying these same standards to to other countries like Russia and China? Yes, I, I you know, I, I, I am constantly struck by the fact that the WTO trade rules uh, would prohibit this kind of data boycott or export ban, uh, except that they have an express provision saying for data protection purposes, you can restrict exports of data as long as it's not, uh, if I remember, discriminatory or arbitrary. But if there's nobody who meets these standards, and if the Europeans themselves don't meet the standard, and the Court of Justice was clear at saying, uh, we don't care about that. We're imposing these standards on the United States and nobody else as far as we're concerned. Um, uh, But to justify that under existing trade law is very difficult when no one else is being held to the same standard. That kind of defines discriminatory, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I'm not a, I'm not an international trade lawyer, but um, but at a minimum, we we like to have e- equal treatment, and that's an issue that we've made clear to our um, counterparts on the commission that uh, it is something that we you know we we're not going to tolerate a regime at the end of the day where the standards are being applied only to the United States and, and not to anyone else because it's just not fair at bottom. Well, I expect them to say, "Oh no, we've done it to Canada and Australia too." But uh, uh, it, it's the same it's the same problem. So let me let me quickly move to. I think the people who are really in the bullseye here, which is people who have received uh, orders um, from the U.S. to provide access to information, particularly under Section 702, which is the, uh, uh, the, the, the most famous and the most productive program, which goes to companies like Facebook and Google to collect information that they've received from users in Europe and uh, Asia and all over the world. Um, and there, there is a requirement that they produce this information. It does override any contracts they may have. And the Court of Justice said that 702 doesn't meet its standards. Um, so what, uh, what can companies that know they've received these orders from time to time, what kind of argument can they make to continue to move data across the Atlantic? So as we Again, just to be careful, we're not giving um, companies arguments. We're just giving them facts on which they can decide whether they want to make arguments. So that's an important distinction uh, to us. But what we wanted to point out is some of the things that may have been overlooked in the um, court's opinion. The court's main concern with 702 seems to be that it is a programmatic approval. In other words, it's an approval of kind of broader certifications and that the individual targeting decisions under 702 are not uh, specifically authorized by the court. Um, what the court may not have been aware of, because it wasn't necessarily in all of the materials that underlay the um, Privacy Shield decision, is that there is a lot of individualized oversight of the targeting decisions under Section 702. So we have ev- each and every single um, individual who is targeted under 702, the, 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 the tasking decision is reviewed by attorneys at the Department of Justice to make sure that it complies with the legal standard, which is essentially that it's likely to obtain foreign intelligence within the scope of the certification. So those are all reviewed um, very um, carefully 
Um, written justifications have to be made. Um, this is something that was put in place after the Schrems II decision. So to write up why one thinks you, that you will be collecting uh, foreign intelligence from that individual person. Though any compliance problems, so to the extent that we identify someone who was wrongly targeted under 702 as part of that process are reported to the FISA court. So the fully independent panel, which can direct remedial action, we would take remedial action to purge any uh, any uh, information that was not properly obtained. The FISA court oversees that. They can ask questions. They can, um, when they see broader, more systemic issues, they can call in the Department of Justice. We have a fiduciary obligation. Obviously, our attorneys do with respect to the court. And so all of this is overseen by the FISA court. So we uh, that is all information that is relevant to the the assessment as to whether there is in fact individualized and kind of tailored review of the intelligence collection that's going on under 702. None of that was discussed in the court's decision in Schrems, and so we want to make sure that companies, as they're evaluating the adequacy of U.S. law, are aware of all that information. So if I can, I I I will put the I, uh, make these statements. I'm not going to ascribe them to you, but this is a very clever approach to what the court did. The court didn't, you know, the court was ignorant of many things and and it certainly did, didn't really understand how intelligence is regulated in the US and they didn't talk about a lot of this. Uh, by pointing to the things they didn't know, didn't talk about, didn't rule on, it's possible to say, well, we think that uh, if they had known all this, they might have come to a different uh, result and therefore um, we can in doing our uh, standard corporate clauses plus review, decide that we know more now than the court did, uh, and we can continue to do these transfers until the court looks at a full record and makes a determination that that uh, full record is still inadequate, uh, which I, at a minimum, I think, would allow a company like Facebook, if they're willing to fight, and, and they probably have to, um, if they're willing to fight to uh, this, uh, to spend another three years in court making good faith arguments that they are in uh, compliance with European law without totally transforming their data storage. So this strikes me as allowing for the status quo to proceed until we get Schrems 3 or a, a new agreement. Uh, uh, so I, I, my hat is off to you. I'm not going to ask you to say that was your motivation, but uh, uh, my hat is off to the Justice Department for having uh, found all of these uh, omissions in the uh, Court of Justice's uh, ruling. You did the same thing in redress. The court had two objections to U.S. law. One, uh, the preposterous notion that every intelligence target should be reviewed by judges before they uh, become a target. Uh, uh, it's not so much preposterous as suicidal. But uh, uh, that uh, uh, that you've handled by saying, well, we have something like that uh, because of the way our intelligence review works. And then they also said, and you have to give redress to Europeans who think that their rights have been violated by your intelligence collection. Um, and there you you basically point to a whole bunch of laws where people could bring lawsuits, uh, including the APA, uh, uh, where there's new judicial rulings that suggest that maybe uh, it is possible to do this uh, um, and some congressional restrictions. Uh, uh, what's what's the best argument that the U.S. provides the redress that the Court of Justice uh, uh, thought was not available? 
So the things that we identified in the white paper are provisions in FISA and in ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, um, as well as the APA, which you mentioned, the Administrative Procedures Act, all of which are statutory means that individuals can and have used to challenge um, uh, uh, the legality of intelligence collection, seek damages actually under some of these provisions if, the, if there was unlawful collection. So those are provisions that weren't mentioned in the SREMS 2 decision uh, at all. Um, instead, the court was really focused on a different redress mechanism that was specifically part of Privacy Shield. So this was an ombudsperson that was set up specifically for the Privacy Shield purpose, where if EU nationals have complaints, they can raise them with the European Union, forward them to a senior official at the State Department who would then evaluate them in concert with the intelligence community, evaluate whether the collection was lawful, and uh, make a judgment and, 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 and ask for corrective action. The court found that mechanism also was inadequate because the individual was not sufficiently independent within the executive branch um, and also didn't have the actual authority to direct or order anyone to respond to any findings of illegality. Um, so... Those are also issues that we're looking at because we, uh, you know, are, are still committed to making the uh, privacy shield arrangement work, and, and th that may be a subject of further discussion. So, in, in addition to the statutory mechanisms that I identified, where people can sue in U.S. court, we also have the ombudsperson. And one of the things that's likely to be a subject of future discussion is: are there ways that we could address the court's concern with with that mechanism? Although, to be honest, the the existing mechanism has actually never been used. Um, there have been uh, since it was put in place in 2016. I think there have been no uh, no complaints brought to to use it, so it's a it's a little bit of a um, um, a little bit of an academic uh, exercise. Well, it's a red herring, and 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 this is this has always been true. Uh, the Europeans have always objected that in theory they're left out of a variety of redress mechanisms. But these are redress mechanisms, the ones that exist, and there are, as you point out, there are many don't get used by the Europeans because they, as in so much of this, they want the theoretical issue more than they want the lawsuit or the redress. Uh, uh, the number of people who care about this outside of uh, uh, the uh, uh, the bien pensant elites uh, uh, in Brussels are very small. Uh, and this shouldn't be the kind of issue that there's a sticking point over. Uh, uh, and maybe you're right. Maybe the answer then is to is to provide a, uh, a mechanism uh, uh, and leave it open to see if anybody will use it um, and meet the uh, the, the uh, European Court of Justice's uh, uh, objections. Uh, it makes me nervous. We don't ordinarily allow, are we going to let the the Russians that we just indicted for uh, engaging in cyber espionage uh, uh, bring an action saying, we think we were improperly targeted under Section 702, and we'd like to appeal to the ombudsman and have our case reviewed and re uh, take a look at the evidence you had against us. Uh, I, I, this is not a, a, a recipe for good intelligence collection. Uh, and again, it's, um, it's an indication of how unrealistic the court is. Well, I, there's one other thing I want to get to because the court didn't just dump on section 702. It dumped on what it called 12333, uh, uh, executive order 12333 uh, collection. This is collection that is not governed by a law, which is why it's known as uh, Executive Order 12333 uh, uh, collection. It is overseas. It doesn't have a connection to the United States, by and large. Uh, uh, and uh, it is uh, subject to 
almost no judicial oversight. Uh, and the court said, well, that just can't can't be right. Um, the problem is, it's not clear to me why that should have anything to do with moving data to the United States. And you sort of make that same point. Right. So um, the issue here is that 12333, Executive Order 12333 is an authorizing document. It authorizes intelligence activities. It also imposes constraints on activities, but it doesn't require companies to do anything. It's not, it's not fundamentally different than 702 in that regard because it is not a compulsory means for access. Companies don't cooperate it, with it and they don't know anything about it. Um, and so, and that, that is also the case with most of the laws of other countries all around the world. They engage in intelligence collection activities and it's, it, uh, they do that unilaterally um, at points abroad or within their own countries. Um, and so your, your point is exactly right, which is if information is leaving Europe, the fact that intelligence uh, uh, agencies around the world, whether it's the United States or another country or a cyber hacker or uh, anyone or a criminal or whoever else might try to access the data is just a fact of life, uh, more so than a, a, something that's relevant to the U.S. Uh, legal regime. Um, now, we've actually gotten, since the white paper was put out and since the Schrems 2 was decided, there's been a pair of other decisions from the European Court of Justice in, uh, on October 6th of this year. One involved, I think, Privacy International, involving retention of data by the UK, Belgium, and France. Another, I'm not sure which countries were involved, but it was essentially another challenge to data retention practices by European member states. And actually, in this case, um, helpfully for us, the Court of Justice actually decided something um, along essentially these lines, which is, does European law even govern unilateral access by uh, member state governments for intelligence purposes. And the court essentially said, no, it doesn't. EU law does not govern unilateral access. It does govern when companies are required as a matter of law to fork over information right, to uh, the UK or France or Belgium or retain it for UK or France or Belgium. But if the UK or France or Belgium are doing things unilaterally under their own intelligence authorities, that's not covered by EU law. Instead, it's accepted under the, the fundamental organic treaty uh, governing the European Union as a national security activity beyond the scope of EU law. So this is a new development, actually, that's not addressed in our white paper, but that if that holds, you would think that it would hold not only for the European governments, but also for the US government, which means there is no comparator. There's nothing for U.S. law to be essentially equivalent to because European law doesn't govern unilateral activities within Europe or here. It only governs processing by companies. So this is another thing that's gone beyond the white paper that I think is a significant legal development that, again, we will be discussing with our uh, partners at the commission. Okay. Yes, I, I, that's, a, that, that's a powerful argument and it fits well with the, the basic argument, which is that uh, uh, I don't have if if the United States government is spying and trying to get this information, um, my moving it to the United States, if anything, makes it a little harder for them to get it, uh, not easier. Uh, and uh, maybe you might want to, if you're in this position, you might want to say, and in any event, I encrypted in transit. So that's the last place the U.S. government is going to uh, uh, intercept it. Uh, uh, but uh, I like the argument of saying, you know, all that complaining about 12333 from the uh, Court of Justice uh, uh, was 
uh, kind of dicta and has been superseded by their much more careful analysis of what the European legal standards are for unilateral access to data. Um, uh, okay, well, I, I, I think that's uh, persuasive. Uh, we'll see whether it works with the DPAs, but it might. Um, so uh, wrapping up, but um, these are these are pretty good arguments. This is a much better argument than I thought anybody uh, uh, who was in Facebook's position uh, moving data had. Um, what's your sense about uh, what companies are doing with these arguments and what reception they're getting in Europe? So we've had some discussions with the companies. Um, they have been appreciative that we put out the white paper and appreciative of the arguments in it. Um, so I think it's been well received. Um, whether they are going, whether and to what extent they'll be making arguments along these lines and how they plan to proceed, you really have to ask them. Uh, uh, I wouldn't suppose as to how they're going to go forward. We're, I think the companies, my sense is they're all nervous <laughs> about what the future holds. We haven't heard much yet from European authorities how they're seeing all of this. There are some additional shoes to drop from the European Data Protection Board and from the Commission as to how they are reading all this going forward. And everyone is eager for us to have further discussions, as are we, with the Commission about a, a durable solution, because no one wants additional litigation over this anyway. Uh, we haven't had a lot of success in the past, with, uh, having been struck down twice uh, uh, by the European Court of Justice. So, you know, we want to find a way to resolve these data conflicts with Europe. Um, th this white paper is just the first step, as you said, in trying to um, to help companies do that. But we all think that, we, uh, you know, the real path forward, we hope, is a, a, a candid discussion with our partners in Europe about what are the appropriate uh, privacy protections around this activity and how can we come to kind of an un a mutual understanding about resolving our somewhat different legal approaches among nations that, to be honest, we all share the same values with our European partners. We all engage in much the same intelligence collection activities. We share intelligence with one another. We should be focusing more on how we, how we can cooperate in this area and then worry more about the Chinese and Russians of the world uh, or Iran who are on the other side of the fence who don't respect privacy um, who don't share our values, who, who are not uh, taking actions consistent with our, our collective national security interests. And that would be time better spent than, than fighting amongst ourselves. So I don't know if that's a, a summary for you. Yes, uh, that, that's great. It, it was the argument I made in 2006, seven, and eight when I was uh, going through what you're going through dealing with the European Union. Uh, uh, and as we can see, uh, 10 years later, 14 years later, they still can't let go, uh, but maybe eventually they will. Uh, that's Brad Wigman, uh, Senior Counselor for the National Security Division at the Justice Department in the United States. Uh, Brad, thanks so much. That was very clear and very helpful. Well, thank you so much for having me, Stuart. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, so our thanks to Brad Wigman, uh, also to Pete Jadell, Jamil Jaffer, Nate Jones for joining me uh, on episode 336 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us comments, questions, feedback, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you suggest a guest and we haven't already invited them, uh, uh, we'll send you our highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, Brad, I'll send you one. It's under 20 bucks, so I think you can keep it. Uh, uh, and uh, if it's 
sometimes uh, when I, I have the time, I uh, ask for a straw poll uh, on Twitter for people who follow me uh, at Stuart Baker uh, uh, to see which stories we ought to cover. So I uh, follow that uh, and rate the show. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, and then join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy and government.